0: In the summer of 1872, Washington, D.C. police officer William West was a man on a mission. Just a few days before on West's beat, a six-year-old boy had been seriously injured by a man racing his horse through the streets of the nation's capital. So when West saw another team of horses thundering down 13th Street, he chased down the driver, took hold of his reins, and forced him to stop. To West's surprise, however... The scofflaw was not some young punk racing his friends for pink slips. It was, in fact, former four-star general, Civil War hero, and sitting president, Ulysses S. Grant. West admonished Grant for setting a bad example, ultimately letting him go with a warning. But the very next day, West yet again caught Grant driving his horses through town at breakneck speed. When West finally managed to stop the president... He informed Grant he had no choice but to place him under arrest. The story goes that Grant told West to, quote, do his duty, unquote, and calmly accompanied West to the nearest police station. Unsure of their authority, the Washington, D.C. police asked Grant to pay a $20 fine and let him walk back to the White House. West and his fellow officers were flummoxed by a question that remains unanswered almost 150 years later. Can the President of the United States be arrested? Hi, I'm Nate Hinchy, and this is Cool Shit, the podcast. This is a show about interesting topics from science, history, the arts, and more. In other words, if it fascinates me, I'm going to talk about it. I know that the world can sometimes seem like an awfully depressing place, but trust me when I say, there's some pretty cool shit out there. I was reading an article recently about Eric Greitens, the man who is, at least for the moment, governor of Missouri. The story felt like a transcript from The Maury Povich Show, and I'll give you the Cliff Notes version here. In 2015, Greitens cheated on his wife with another married woman, who also happened to be his hairstylist. The hairstylist's husband secretly recorded his wife talking about the affair with the governor. In those recordings, she told her husband that Greitens had blindfolded her, taped her to a piece of exercise equipment, stripped her naked and then took photos of her. He told her if she ever told anyone else about their affair, he would release the pictures. In Missouri, taking a photo without someone's consent is a misdemeanor, with a maximum punishment of a year in prison. However, another Missouri law says that if the person taking the picture, quote, distributes the image to another, or transmits the image in a manner that allows access to that image via computer, unquote, the crime becomes a felony. On February 22, 2018, Greitens was indicted on those felony charges. The next day, Greitens, the governor of Missouri, was arrested by St. Louis deputies, booked, and eventually released on his own recognizance. Governors, judges, and legislators, both state and federal, can all be arrested in the United States. Greitens is just the latest in a long and storied history of criminal politicians. But that makes perfect sense to me. As powerful as these people are, there is always someone who holds a higher office. Someone who can ultimately hold them accountable to the law. But the story got me thinking. Do these same rules apply to the person at the very top? Can the sitting President of the United States be arrested, tried, and, if found guilty, hauled off to jail? It seems like a pretty important question. So I'm sure the Constitution gives us perfectly clear instructions on the matter. Well, here's what Article 1, Section 3 says Quote, Judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. But the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law. Unquote. So there you go. Question answered. And answering questions, well, that's some pretty cool shit. Thank you all for listening. And, wait, no, hold on. That doesn't answer the question at all. What Section 3 says is that the president can be both impeached and arrested. But that's not really what the confusion is all about here. If a president breaks the law and is then impeached, what Section 3 tells us is that he or she can also be indicted. Essentially, it means that impeachment doesn't trigger double jeopardy. So even if you get impeached, you're still on the hook for the crime you committed. Section 3 also says that the, quote, party convicted, unquote, or the party that's been impeached, shall be liable and subject to indictment, which seems to imply that a president needs to be impeached before they can be arrested. Of course, if that's what the Founding Fathers meant, why not just throw in a single extra word to clear things up? the party convicted shall then nevertheless be liable. Problem solved. Well, one of the reasons they didn't was because they couldn't agree themselves. Alexander Hamilton would contend that the president can't be arrested without being impeached first. Patrick Henry, of give-me-liberty-or-give-me-death fame, would claim the exact opposite. And when the draft of the Constitution was sent to the states for ratification, they were also torn on how exactly they should be interpreting Article 1, Section 3. In 1789, during the first-ever session of Congress, William McClay, a senator from Pennsylvania, was arguing with then-Vice President John Adams about whether a sitting president can be charged with a crime. Adams' position was clear, Quote, when he's no longer president, you can indict him, Unquote. But McClay wasn't ready to concede. He would counter, Quote, Suppose the president committed murder in the street. Impeach him, but in the meantime he runs away. Or suppose he continues his murders daily and neither house is sitting to impeach him. Oh, the people would rise and restrain him. Very well, you will allow the mob to do what legal justice must abstain from. I get quite a kick out of knowing that, almost from day one, we were already planning for what might happen if we elected a serial killer as president. It's almost as if a modern-day presidential candidate claiming that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and not lose a single voter isn't, from a historical perspective, one of the craziest fucking things you've ever heard. Almost. Let's take a step back for a moment. What is impeachment? Well, impeachment is the constitutionally prescribed way of removing public officials from office. In the case of the president... The process can get started in a few different ways, but the first major step is a full vote in the House of Representatives. In the House, all you need is a simple majority—50% plus one vote. If that happens, the president has technically been impeached. However, actually removing a president from office requires a subsequent trial in the Senate, with the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court presiding as judge. After the trial, if two-thirds of the Senate votes to do so, the president is convicted and removed. And according to a 1993 Supreme Court case, there can be no judicial review or appeal of the decision. The moment the Senate votes to convict, the president is no longer the president. Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton are the only U.S. presidents ever to be impeached by the House, but both were acquitted in their Senate trials. All right, so now what does it mean to indict someone? An indictment is basically a formal accusation that someone has committed a crime. In federal cases, the process starts with a grand jury. Grand juries are made up of the same people who serve on petite juries, or your normal trial juries. But they're different in two main ways. One, they're bigger. Instead of 12 angry men, grand juries can have upwards of 23 members. And two, they don't determine guilt, only probable cause that a crime has been committed by a given person. There are a lot of exceptions and provisos, but generally speaking, if a president is going to get charged with a crime, it's probably going to start with a grand jury. If a majority of the grand jury finds probable cause, the prosecutor can file an indictment. After that, the person charged with the crime will be tried by a jury of their peers, and if found guilty, sentenced, and potentially incarcerated. Now, being arrested is actually different from all of that. An arrest is when a law enforcement officer forcibly restrains an individual and takes them into custody. You can technically be arrested without being charged with a crime, but there are limits on how long you can be held. Okay, back to 1789. Senator McClay and Vice President Adams eventually agreed to disagree. While I'm sure they both would have preferred to settle the issue definitively, I imagine that they ultimately realized... They had bigger fish to fry than answering the hypothetical question of what to do in the extremely unlikely event a member of the executive branch ended up murdering someone. And then, 15 years later, Vice President Aaron Burr shot and killed Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> As most of us now know, either from the musical Hamilton or that 90s Got Milk commercial where the dude has a mouthful of peanut butter, Aaron Burr challenged Alexander Hamilton to a duel in response to some borderline slanderous comments that Hamilton had made to a newspaper about Burr. The two met in the early morning hours of July 11, 1804 in Weehawken, New Jersey, in order to settle the matter. Hamilton's shot missed wide. Though some historians claim he missed intentionally. There is no such debate about Burr's shot, which struck Hamilton in the stomach, mortally wounding him. Now, admittedly, there's controversy about almost everything that happened that day. So take this with a grain of salt. But the way I hear it, Hamilton's last words were quote, I changed my mind. You don't have to impeach him first. Unquote. Hamilton was taken across the Hudson River to the home of a nearby friend, where he died the next day. Because he had been shot in New Jersey and died in New York, both states indicted Vice President Aaron Burr for murder. In response, 11 senators wrote a letter to the governors of those two states asking them to drop the charges. The rationale? It would be a PR nightmare. For real. They wrote how they wanted to avoid the embarrassment of having to hold up Aaron Burr to the rest of the world as a, quote, common murderer, unquote. The letter is noteworthy for two reasons. One, it implies that the senators would have been cool with having a vice president who murdered someone if he had just done it in a more interesting way. And two, the senators chose not to assert any kind of presidential or vice presidential immunity to prosecution. By asking nicely, they were implying that the governors were well within their rights to indict a sitting vice president. For a number of reasons. Neither case ultimately ended up going to trial, so the question became moot before it could be resolved. Nothing particularly relevant would happen for the next 170 years, so we're going to speed up a bit. There is a surprisingly well-spread rumor online that Franklin Pierce, the 14th president, was once arrested for drunkenly running over a woman with his carriage, but from what I can tell, it never actually happened. Andrew Johnson, as I mentioned before, was impeached in 1868, But this was largely for political reasons. His only crime was firing someone that Congress didn't want fired. And while Ulysses S. Grant is very likely the only commander-in-chief who's ever been quote-unquote arrested, the incident certainly didn't spark any sort of constitutional crisis. In fact, Grant and William West were purported to have become friends. Because you gotta respect the balls on a guy who would write the president a speeding ticket. Things wouldn't really get interesting again until 1969, when Richard Milhouse Nixon, aided by a decent amount of fear-mongering and some possible treason, won the White House. Nixon is a pretty important case study, so let's do a quick review of his presidency. For starters, and this, ironically, is not going to play a role in the scandal that leads to his resignation, but I feel like if you accuse the president of treason, you should probably offer an explanation. There's pretty solid evidence to show that Nixon, as a presidential candidate, was personally involved in sabotaging the Paris peace talks that might have brought an end to the war in Vietnam. He was presumably worried that if the talks succeeded, that might help his Democratic opponent, Hubert Humphrey. The talks failed, and the Vietnam War raged for another five years. Thousands of American servicemen, and untold numbers of Vietnamese soldiers and civilians, died because Richard Nixon wanted to be president. He's not a nice guy, is what I'm getting at. The scandal that would ultimately topple Nixon began in 1972 when Forrest Gump reported a break-in at the Watergate office complex in Washington, D.C. It's a very informative movie if you want to learn more about all of this. On June 17th, five men broke into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee. When they were arrested, they had cash on them that was traced by the FBI to a slush fund used by the Nixon presidential campaign. Nixon and members of his administration began trying to cover up their involvement in the burglary. Because he was stupid and paranoid, in addition to being corrupt, Nixon recorded all of the conversations that took place in the Oval Office, including ones in which he admitted to obstructing the investigation into the break-in. In In 1974, the Supreme Court ordered Nixon to release the tapes. The House of Representatives quickly moved to begin impeachment proceedings. Knowing that he was screwed, Nixon resigned the presidency on August 9, 1974, His vice president, Gerald Ford, was sworn in and just under a month later gave Nixon a full and unconditional pardon. The president has absolute authority to pardon anyone for any federal crime, so Ford's actions meant that Nixon could never be indicted or tried for his many offenses. But before that, arrest was a real possibility, and Nixon's team was absolutely thinking about it. In fact, Nixon went so far as to throw his own vice president under the bus in order to help cover his ass. To be fair, though, Spiro Agnew was no Boy Scout himself. Before he joined the Republican ticket in 1968, Agnew had been governor of Maryland. In that role, and basically throughout his entire political career, Agnew had been up to some real shady shit. In 1973, the U.S. Attorney for the District of Maryland started investigating Agnew, suspecting him of committing multiple acts of conspiracy, bribery, extortion and tax fraud. On one occasion, the head of an engineering firm visited Agnew in the White House and brought him $10,000 in cash as a kickback for a contract that Agnew had helped him win. Agnew claimed it was a campaign contribution. An honest mistake, I'm sure. Thank you, Mayor Quimby, for honoring us with the school milk concession. Well, the good children of Springfield need their milk, and I need my... (coughs) Please accept this kickback as a token of our esteem. Thank you, Fat Tony. However, in the future, I would prefer a nondescript briefcase to the sack with a dollar sign on it. Right around this same time, Nixon's Department of Justice had been working on a way to protect the president from criminal charges. DOJ lawyers had introduced a new twist into the age-old argument. They claimed that, quote, the indictment or criminal prosecution of a sitting president... Would impermissibly undermine the capacity of the executive branch to perform its constitutionally assigned functions. Put another way, their argument says that because presidents can't do their job from a jail cell, or while distracted by a trial, it would be unconstitutional to arrest or charge them. When Agnew got wind of this argument, he thought, sign me up! If presidents can't do their jobs from jail cells, then surely vice presidents can't either. Right, guys? Am I right? It fell upon Solicitor General Robert Bork to break the bad news to Agnew. Two weeks after the DOJ released the memo outlining the reasons why a president can't be charged with a crime, Bork wrote a second memo in which he clarified that only the president has this special immunity. Veeps, as it turns out, are shit out of luck. Agnew went back to the U.S. Attorney and asked for a deal. In October of 1973, he pled no contest to one count of tax evasion and resigned as vice president. Robert Bork, by the way, was also a key player in what would come to be known as the Saturday Night Massacre, another fun example of Nixon's borderline authoritarianism. A man named Archibald Cox had been appointed as a special prosecutor to investigate the White House's role in the Watergate break-in and subsequent cover-up. A little over a week after Agnew had submitted his resignation, Cox demanded that Nixon turn over his Oval Office recordings. At first, Nixon flat-out refused. But after some consideration, he decided to offer what he felt was a perfectly reasonable compromise. Rather than hand the incriminating tapes over, Nixon suggested that Senator John Stennis, a man notoriously hard of hearing, would listen to the tapes on his own, and then summarize them to Archibald Cox. Not surprisingly, Cox was interested in getting more than just the gist of Nixon's crimes against the state, and refused the counteroffer. Livid, Nixon ordered the Attorney General, Elliot Richardson, to fire Cox. Richardson refused and resigned in protest. Nixon then ordered the Deputy Attorney General to fire Cox. He, too, refused and resigned. Finally, Nixon ordered Robert Bork, now the acting head of the Justice Department, to fire Cox. Bork quickly drafted a letter firing the special counsel. In his posthumously published memoirs, Bork would claim that Nixon had promised him the next open seat on the Supreme Court in exchange for firing Cox. Nixon would, of course, not have the opportunity to appoint a justice before he resigned in disgrace. And when Ronald Reagan nominated Bork to the Supreme Court in 1987, six Republican senators crossed party lines to defeat his nomination. One of them was John Stennis. It's a rare occurrence, but sometimes people really do get what they deserve in this life. If you'll permit me to go off on a quick tangent, it was not always a guarantee that Nixon would resign. By 1974, the dude was losing it. He drank heavily, talked about exacting retribution against his political enemies, and stewed over ways to hamper or halt the Watergate investigation. With all Nixon had done to gain power, some of those close to him were beginning to fear what he might do to hold on to it. That spring, a longtime Washington bureaucrat named Joseph Ladian called Nixon's Secretary of Defense, a man named James Schlesinger. Letian said to Schlesinger, quote, "If I were in your job, I would want to know the location of the combat troops nearest to downtown Washington." Unquote. Robert Cushman, the commandant of the Marine Corps, had been a friend and political ally of Nixon for 20 years. Nixon had passed over more senior officers to put Cushman in charge of the Marines. And apparently, some in D.C. were worried that if Congress impeached the president, or if law enforcement agents attempted to arrest him, Nixon would order U.S. Marines to defend him. If it had happened, it would have triggered the most severe constitutional crisis since the Civil War. But Schlesinger wasn't about to give Nixon the chance. He told the Joint Chiefs of Staff to ignore any order from Nixon unless he himself approved it. Now, the President has absolute power over the military as Commander-in-Chief, and by subverting the chain of command... Schlesinger took that power away from Nixon. It could very well have been the right thing to do, but it was, technically, an act of treason. It does give me the chance, however, to play what is probably my favorite West Wing clip of all time. The National Security Advisor and the Secretary of State didn't know who they were taking their orders from. I wasn't in the Situation Room that night, but I'll bet all the money in my pockets against all the money in your pockets that it was Leo, who no one elected, for 90 minutes that night there was a coup d'etat in this country. Before the situation had a chance to escalate, however, Nixon did resign. He would also never have the opportunity to try out the defense that a sitting president is immune to prosecution because it would prevent him from doing his duty but that argument would eventually make for some strange bedfellows. In 2000, the Department of Justice under Democratic President Bill Clinton would agree with the conclusions put forth by Nixon's DOJ. For context, Bill Clinton was impeached in December 1998 on two charges, perjury and obstruction of justice, both stemming from a sexual harassment lawsuit filed against Clinton by Paula Jones. The impeachment was the culmination of a six-year investigation by independent counsel Kenneth Starr into all manner of alleged Clinton wrongdoing, from improper investments in Arkansas real estate to Bill's affair with Monica Lewinsky. Starr has since said that he believed he had the authority to directly indict President Clinton, but instead chose to present his findings to Congress so that they could initiate impeachment proceedings. The Department of Justice's 2000 memo can be seen as maybe a parting shot at Starr's conclusion. Or, seen through a less cynical lens, it might be that Clinton's DOJ really did believe that the president enjoys some special immunity from criminal prosecution, reaffirming the conclusions of the Nixon DOJ memo because of its sound legal arguments. And that's fair, because, all things considered, it's a pretty good argument. The president is, at least in theory, elected by the entire nation— it doesn't really make sense for one small part of that nation to be able to undo the will of the whole. That's why the Constitution created a mechanism for impeachment that allows all citizens, via their representatives in the House and Senate, to have a say in whether or not a president is removed from office. The fact that impeachment is so clearly articulated in the Constitution is another point in favor of presidential immunity until impeachment takes place even if they could still Skype to their heart's content, a president obviously cannot do their job from jail. Preventing a president from performing their constitutionally mandated duties without removing them from office prevents anyone from legally performing those duties. Not only would this pose a legitimate threat to the stability of the government, it also does seem patently unconstitutional. But the argument does have some holes. First off, it implies that a president is immune to all crimes that don't warrant impeachment. For example, what if a president throws back a few too many cocktails at a state dinner, hotwires one of the limos in his motorcade, and starts tearing through downtown D.C.? Unless they're already on some pretty shaky political ground, it's unlikely that an arrest for drunk driving is enough to trigger impeachment. But not bringing criminal charges would undermine the concept of the rule of law, the idea that every person has to follow the same set of rules. On the other hand, impeaching a president just to charge them with a DUI seems like a massive overreaction. The second hole in the argument is that impeachment is not the only mechanism to remove a president from office. The 25th Amendment introduces three new ways outside of impeachment that the powers of the presidency can be handed over to the vice president. Now to note, I'm going to use the male pronouns throughout here, because that's what the 25th Amendment does, and, much to my chagrin, we've not yet had a female president. So, option number one. The president can write a letter to Congress saying he's, quote, unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, unquote. When he does, the vice president becomes acting president, until the president writes a second letter saying he wants back in the game. Option number two the vice president and a majority of the cabinet can write a letter to Congress claiming the president is disabled. If the president protests, the question of his fitness goes to Congress, which leads us to option three. Congress can, after jumping through a few bureaucratic hoops, vote itself on whether the president is no longer fit for duty. A two-thirds majority is required in both houses to transfer the powers of the presidency to the vice president. This is all to say that if a president was convicted of a crime and sentenced to jail, that could constitute a disability under the 25th Amendment. Because there's a mechanism that would ensure the orderly transition of power to the vice president, it might not be unconstitutional to prosecute the president. The question of constitutionality ultimately rests with the Supreme Court, but they can only weigh in when a case is brought before them. And strangely enough, While the Nixon and Clinton memos are not law, they might still prevent such a case from getting to the Supreme Court. You may be thinking to yourself, a lot of this sounds awfully familiar. Well, I'd be lying if I said that Robert Mueller's investigation into the Trump campaign and administration wasn't part of the reason I was interested in finding out the answer to this question. But I'm intentionally not going to get into that, because it's still, as of February 2018, too early to tell what will come of his probe. But I will say this, should Mueller feel he has sufficient evidence to indict Donald Trump, he may not have the authority to do so. Kenneth Starr served as an independent counsel under a statute that expired in June of 1999. Mueller is instead serving as a special counsel under Department of Justice regulations, which mandate that he, quote, comply with the rules, regulations, procedures, practices, and policies Of the Department of Justice. So it's possible that the memo written by Clinton's Justice Department in 2000, saying that a sitting president cannot be indicted, might be considered departmental policy. If so, it would prevent Mueller from bringing charges against Donald Trump. Instead, his only option would be to present his findings to Congress, recommending impeachment if he thought it warranted. So Bill Clinton, by copying Richard Nixon's homework, might end up saving. Donald Trump's ass. What a world we're living in. All right, Nate, you've been talking for damn near a half hour already. It's a simple enough question. Can the president of the United States be arrested? Well, yes, no. There's something called Betteridge's Law, which says that any newspaper headline that ends with a question mark can usually be answered by the word no. I'm not sure if that law applies to podcasts, but if so, this is the exception that proves the rule. We really don't know. Like I said, the only way we'll know for sure is if it happens, at which point the Supreme Court will have the final say. And that scenario requires the president to have committed a crime, or at the very least to have done something that looks an awful lot like a crime. And it probably boils down to your own political persuasion as to whether you're pulling for that to happen or not. But at least personally, it's reassuring that this is even up for debate. Of all the moments in human history, how lucky we are to be alive in one where we are free to ask that question. To live in an age and in a country where we can openly debate whether any man or woman, even the president, is above the law. Maybe I'm grasping for straws, but that strikes me as some pretty cool shit. Thank you all for listening. If you've liked what you've heard so far, I'd be elated if you rate, review, subscribe to, and share Cool Shit. You can also drop us a line, either via email at coolshitcast@gmail.com at gmail.com or on Twitter cool shit cast cool shit's music is by arnie bang hughesby thanks arnie until next time